0: Thank you for listening to our Truth In Life podcast. This season, we will survey the Bible's unfolding story of redemption, from Genesis to Revelation. Every book points to Christ and edifies his church. For more information on our church, visit ChristTheWord.com. We are gonna be studying Obadiah, starting with Obadiah, spending the next six weeks going through the Minor Prophets. So how many of you would say that you're very familiar with Minor Prophets? as familiar as you are with like genesis let's say and yeah me neither i i think uh i think honestly the minor prophets can be intimidating for a lot of people because they're not quite as accessible maybe or on the surface as genesis or you know some of these history books you read through a book like that and it's almost like reading a novel right you're reading uh you know this gripping story about a brother and his strife with his other brothers uh, or even some of the other prophets, for instance. You read Isaiah, and you might read a passage like Isaiah 25, talking about the, the heaven, what heaven's going to be like, and this feast, this wedding feast. It's, it's really you know, easy to, to grasp, like, oh man, this is exciting. And God's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes, and it, we can relate to it. And sometimes with minor prophets, those themes aren't quite as easy to grasp. But the reality is it's the same message. It's the same message through all of scripture. I think the Old Testament, which this year we're studying the Old Testament, the Old Testament sometimes can get a bad rap amongst Christians, which is really sad, but it can get a bad rap for being doom and gloom. And I've even heard people say like, use the actual phrase, the God of the Old Testament, and then the God of the New Testament, as if it's a different God, and if it's a different story. And, Uh, You you know, you read through the prophets, and sure, over the next six weeks, we're going to see some prophecies about destruction. But really, what we're going to see is this underlying theme of God redeeming his people. And that's the story of the Old Testament. God being faithful to his people, Israel, redeeming his people, though they don't deserve it, is this constant theme. And it's the gospel. So, you know, my goal, let's say over the next six weeks here, we are. We're going to be covering a lot of material, uh, but I don't necessarily want at the end to be, you know, to have you guys say, "Okay, I know exactly what every chapter of every minor prophet is." But what I do want us all to remember is one, I want us to remember what the themes of the books are. So, you know, you might remember Obadiah. Oh, that's the prophecy to Edom, and remember that just big picture what that prophecy is. Uh, but then, even more than that. I want us to understand and really see this, good, this theme of the goodness of God running through all these books as a solid vein. So, like I said, we are starting with Obadiah. Matt French had brought that up last week, saying, oh man, that'd be an easy book to go through. And in some ways he's right. You know, with, with the Minor Prophets, an advantage that we have is that we can cover a lot more of the material. In fact, we're gonna read the entire book today. This is probably the only time. Don't get used to it. This is the only book that you'll probably read the entire book. It's the shortest book in the Old Testament. It's one chapter long, Uh, but you know there is some advantage that we'll be able to maybe get a little more in depth than, say, the Pentateuch. Uh, But again, really focusing on what the themes are and seeing God's um, God's goodness. So every week in this lesson, or in this in my course, and every other module, even the other ones, we're going to pretty much follow a standard outline Uh, we're going to look at historical setting and that's really kind of talking about the author and the context of the book and then uh, talk about the outline so what happens in the book then and then talking about Christ and his church so how we'll we'll get into this a little more but really talking about how how we see the gospel how do we see the church how it applies to us uh, you know which can be helpful again because the Sometimes the the minor prophets seem like, "Oh, these are prophesied to a, a country that doesn 't even exist anymore it, so we 're going to be bringing it in to really see how it applies to us, and then finally, how we put it into practice in in our lives so i 'm excited I think you know, i 've learned a lot through studying these, and that 's kind of what i 'm hoping to convey to everybody too is just you know what. <laughs> The, these prophets are not just this doom and gloom, bleak picture. There's uh, a lot of of God's goodness. So, historical setting. As far as the author, we actually don't know a lot about Obadiah. Uh, there are uh, some prophets that we have a lot of context given. So you read the book of Amos, and it says, Amos, who was among the shepherders, he was a shepherd, of Tekoa, we know what he did, we know he, where he was from, which he envisioned concerning Israel in the days of King Uzziah of Judah. There's a ton of info, we know who he's preaching to, what king, you know, the, we can pinpoint the timeline. Uh, so, with Obadiah, that's not the case. There, it's kind of vague. We can pick up from historical context, certain things. There are actually a lot of different Obadiahs mentioned in the Old Testament can anybody think of other than this? Does anybody remember anybody named Obadiah in the Old Testament? Nate? the guy who hid the, first,
1: the king.
0: Yeah, exactly. So uh, basically Elijah and Ahab uh, during that whole story, King Ahab and Jezebel, Jezebel was trying to attack the prophets of the Lord, right? And Obadiah who was servant in the house of Ahab went and hit him. By fifties, and then he was the one that came to Eli- who Elijah actually appeared to. He was like, "Hey, go tell Ahab I'm here." And he's like, "Oh, do you want me dead? I'm gonna, you know, you're, you're gonna say that, and you're just gonna get carried off by the wind or something." And uh, don't you know that I've been faithful and hid away the the servant? So yeah, Obadiah is uh, mentioned there as this really faithful servant to God. From what we can tell, though, it doesn't seem to be the same Obadiah. Again, we're not we're not told uh, specifically, but something that's also important to understand is that you know for this if god didn't tell us explicitly in his word that this is you know this certain time it's you know this is just uninspired information that we're kind of putting together and saying okay we think it's at this point in time the prophecy was written so uh and we'll talk a little bit more about the timeline in a bit but what is clear is that the prophecy is written toward the people of edom and there is a lot that we can know from scripture about the people of Edom, kind of who they are, their background. Does anybody know who the Edomites were or who they descended from, maybe? Descended from Esau. Esau, okay. Good. Um d- does anybody know what Edom means? Red. <laughs> yeah. Edom means red. And why would that make sense about Esau?
1: Because he had red hair.
0: Esau was a red man, it says. So yeah, we, Edom in, in Hebrew actually means red. So the Edomites descended from Esau. So how far back does the struggle between Israel and, and Esau go? The womb. <laughs> the womb, yeah. So e, they became two nations, right? And remember, uh, Rebekah said, oh, two na- or two, I feel a struggle within my new womb. And, And then God said, well, two nations are in your womb and the two peoples will be separated from your body and the one shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. So from the very beginning, there was this strife between Jacob and Esau. I I put this map up here um, just so you can kind of see where Edom is. So the kingdom of Edom is right down here. Uh, So at this point in time, Remember Israel, the, the nation of Israel had split. There was a civil war essentially after, after King Solomon. Uh, the north departed, said, hey, we don't need to recognize the house of David anymore. We're going to have our own king. They set up a capital in Samaria. And then Judah uh, was the, the southern kingdom. So you, if you hear like references oh, to the northern kingdom, that means Israel. Which was capital in Samaria. Every bad, every king was bad in Israel. Every single one was idolater. Uh, you know the Samaria had illegitimate idols set up in their temples of worship. Kingdom of Judah was the southern kingdom, and that's the one you know, where the line of Christ was through. And there are, there's a mixture. There are some good kings and bad kings uh, in Judah as well. But you can kind of see the kingdom of Edom then, then down below. Um, but you know, going back to the Jacob and Esau, we see even, yeah, from their womb, but then throughout their life, this constant strife, uh, Isaac loved Esau, Rebecca loved Jacob. And you know, this is not the source of their strife, right? Like we know that it is prophesied they're going to be at strife even before that kind of happened, but it is interesting or important that like the the sin of the family, because we can call that sin, right? You know, picking favorites among your kids, showing favoritism to one over the other, and setting up, you know, pitting the children against each other. You see even the sins of the parents and the ways that they've kind of pitted the children against each other, that sin is fleshed out and grows and continues really snowballing uh, into, into their adult life and beyond. So Esau had no care for the things of God. Why do we know that? What what, what did he famously do? What's that? Gave up, Gave up his birthright. Yes. So for what, in exchange for a, pot of stew. a pot of stew And when you think about it, I mean, this birthright, this what he get, was giving up. He so Esau was the firstborn, so he would have naturally been the the uh, one who had the inheritance. He was giving up the inheritance, the heritage of Abraham and Isaac. You know, this incredible heritage that God had said, hey, I'm gonna bless you. So it wasn't even just a normal birthright. This was this blessing from God, this prophecy that like, that you're gonna become a great nation. He gave up that heritage when he sold his birthright. He brought grief to his parents. He married Hittite women. And then, There was this falling out. Esau threatened to kill Jacob. Jacob scooted out of there and they didn't see each other for a decade or more. And then they did reconcile when they came back to me, but they didn't really see, that they went their separate ways, right? They met again when their father died to bury him. Uh, But then we're not told a ton more about the actual relationship between Jacob and Esau at that point. But then Edom does kind of show up again throughout scripture. Does anybody, can anybody think of any instances where the Edomites might have showed up through in the story of, of the Old Testament? When they came out of Egypt, they went
1: through Edom. And I think did not go to war with Edom. Commanded not to go to
0: war with Edom. Yes. So they, I think that it sounds like they actually passed through twice because earlier on, yes, they passed through the land and God said, they're your brothers, right? Don't touch them. Um, and then actually later on in Numbers 20, so this was, would have been closer to the end of their wanderings uh, when they when was getting closer to them entering the promised, plan, promised land. They wanted to come. So basically, you know, Israel left Egypt, which is, I'm asking you to extrapolate in the map over here. Egypt was over here, kind of wandered around through Sinai, went up to enter the land, were faithless. And said, Oh, it's a bad land. So God said, Okay, you're going to wander back. So then they went back and wandered around. So then, when they were coming back again toward the end of the 40 years of wandering in the desert in order to get ready to conquer the land, they wanted to go through Edom again. And they said, We will not pass, or they, so Israel said, We won't pass through your vineyards. We're not going to take anything. We won't bother you. We just want to take the king's highway. And they said, No. And if you come against us, we're going to muster our forces. <laughs> so they, uh, there was some definitely some strife. At that point, Edom probably felt threatened by Israel because there were this massive army. This was after they had destroyed um Og and in, in Sidon. Um how about Doeg the Edomite? Does anybody remember Doeg the Edomite? He's he the
1: one who he was with
0: yes. Yeah, he ran he and then he personally slew all this, the priests at Nob. Bad dude. He was a shepherd, leading shepherd. But yeah, when Saul was chasing David, he went and killed a ton of priests unarmed, you know, bad <laughs> bad guy. So what we see here is this there's this long history of strife between between the two countries. So as far as like the historical timeline, time frame of the book, again, this is not inspired. We're picking up from clues. But based on a lot of the prophecy, it sounds like, This happened after the Babylonian uh, exile. So this is just kind of a timeline of the kings of Judah. Um, The kingdom divided, that's what I mentioned. Then Israel was exiled, the northern kingdom was exiled, and then later, about 120 years later, uh, Judah was as well. So we think that this happened based on some of the, again, some of the context that happened afterwards. So, well, let's go ahead and... Take a look at the, um, the book. Like I said, we're, this is the only time we're gonna read the whole thing. And I'll get some volunteers as we kind of read through it. Um, but the, first, the way it's kind of first broken out, the first chunk, the first nine verses are talking about is really God's coming in and declaring judgment. Uh, so does someone wanna go ahead? AJ, nice and loud, thank you. Just, this just yeah, just this whole slide here.
1: The vision of Obadiah thus says the Lord God concerning Edom: We have heard a report from the Lord, and an envoy has been sent among the nations, saying, "Arise and let us go against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock and the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your Who will bring me down to earth,' shall so be built high like." though you set your death from the stars. From there, I will bring you down to the place of the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers by night, oh, how do you be ruined? Would they not steal only until they had enough? If great came to you, would they not leave some gleanings?
0: All right, I'm going to have you keep reading, actually, because this is also going through verse 9.
1: Oh, how Esau will be ransacked and his hidden treasures searched out. All the men allied with you will send you forth to the border, and the men at peace with you will deceive you and overpower you. They who eat your bread will set an ambush for you. There is no understanding in it. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountain of Esau? Then your mighty men will be dismayed, O demon, so that everyone may be cut off from the mountain of Esau by slaughter.
0: Cool. Thank you. So this probably in some ways sounds familiar to other passages, right? Just as they might have heard from the Old Testament as far as... Uh, it's a prophecy of destruction is coming and God's saying, this is what's going to happen. You're going to be ransacked. Your hidden treasures are going to be searched out. So I think it's pretty clear that this is God coming in and declaring judgment is coming. A couple of things I think are interesting to point out or maybe helpful to understand. So it talks about their pride, right? In, in uh, It says, you who live in the clefts of the rock in the loftiness of your dwelling place, say in your heart. And it goes on with this pride. So Esau lived in the highlands. Mount Seir was their, uh, their territory. In Deuteronomy, it actually talks about that. It says, you will pass through... The territory of your brothers the sons of esau who live in seir this is kind of the passage you're mentioning earlier and they will be afraid of you so be very careful do not provoke them i will not give you this is god talking to israel i will not give you any of their land even as little as a footstep because i have given mount seir to esau as a possession so even god is saying <laughs> esau i have given mount seir this high country in order to to live so but they don't thank God for that, right? They don't trust God. They don't think, okay, God is the one who's given us this inheritance. They have arrogance and they think that they're gonna be okay because they live in the you know, in the mountains. Obviously mountains were safer than living on the plains or in a valley, right? It was a vantage point. You could see enemy forces coming. <coughs> Much easier to defend. So, you know, from their standpoint, they're thinking, okay, you know, there's all these other Nations, around, Assyria's around, you know, ransacking other nations. Babylon's out there. We're fine. We're going to be okay. You know, we're nobody's going to come hurt us because we're we're up in these mountains in the in the cleft of the rock. It said. And I think it should resonate today. You know, trusting in so many things other than God for our security. All right, let's keep let's keep rolling through the the book. So after it kind of comes in with this declaration that there's going to be judgment against you, it starts, this next section kind of starts fleshing out why. So uh, I'll have another volunteer read, but as, as you're listening and as you're reading along, keep your eye out so, to see like, what's, what's the reason for the judgment? Why is God stating that they are going to be judged? Have another volunteer who could read nice and loud like AJ did?
1: not enter the gate of my people in the day of their disaster. Yes, you do not vote over their calamity in the day of their disaster, and do not loot their wealth in the day of their disaster. Do not stand at the fork of the road to cut down their fugitives,
0: and do not imprison their survivors in the day of their distress. Okay. Do you guys notice any like themes or recurring phrases in there? (laughs) In the day of their disaster. Okay. So... What's God saying here? Who's disaster? What's, what's this judgment coming down? It says because. Because of why? why? <laughs> it
1: sounds like they probably participated when Babylon came in and
0: ransacked Israel. Okay, good. So if you can hear he said, it, it sounds like they probably participated when Babylon came in and ransacked Israel. And this is why we think that it came after the Babylon, Babylonian destruction. But what it sounds like is, were they the primary aggressor against Israel or against Judah when Babylon came in? No, but what what were they doing? Gloating. Glo- no.
1: Gloating?
0: Plundering. Them. What, pl- yeah, maybe plundering them. Were you gonna say something, Keith?
1: Just like, took advantage of. The yeah.
0: yeah, it's like kick them when they're down. Okay, get or, yeah, Babylon comes in and phew, they're gonna kind of stomp them, get you get some yeah some plunder out of them. Go yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's very much uh, it's kind of an idea like <laughs> a sneaky visual.
1: Hmm.
0: You know, yeah. Stan, just Greg.
1: When it says on the day that you stood aloof, it sounds like they just kind of stood by and let it happen to them. Whereas, I mean, if you think about a family relationship, they should have been helping their brother.
0: Right. Yeah, so it says a couple times, your brother Jacob, your brother's day. You know, there's, so rather than being, (laughs) rather than helping, or even being like personally sorry that this is happening, they're, yeah, they're coming in, they're cutting down at the fork in the road. The (laughs) the people who are fleeing, like you said, I mean, it's very, very low. Uh, Psalm 137 actually says this. I'll read it. By the rivers of Babylon we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom. I've read this psalm a hundred times and never like put until I started looking into this like put two and two together like why it's talking about Edom? Because most of the psalm is talking about Babylon and you know smashing their <laughs> babies in the gates. I mean it's violent like it's a violent psalm about Babylon and the evils of Babylon. But there's this thing in Edom about Edom right in the middle of it. Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem. Who said, raise it, raise it to his very foundation. So they're kind of there chanting on, right? Like, destroy the thing, come on, yeah! Like, they are doing the opposite of what a brother should do. They're encouraging the destruction, they're taking advantage of it, and, you know, really acting shamefully. So let's, let's keep rolling, let's see what happens next. So, you see this Announcement that there's going to be destruction. Then we see here's why, because of how they've treated Jacob. So this is the outcome. This is what's going to happen. And can we get a volunteer to read that? Craig, thanks.
1: The day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. Because just as you drank on my holy mountain, all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and swallow and become as if they had never existed.
0: Good. Okay, the key word right here, the key phrase is, you have done, it will be done to you, your dealings will return on your own head. And then, you know, even that drink and become as if they've never existed, like, they're going to be wiped out. And this is what happened. I and mean, this is what actually came to pass. So, uh, during... The Babylonian supremacy, Edom was involved in a conspiracy against Nebuchadnezzar. And this, this this part is actually documented in Scripture. In Jeremiah 27, there's this prophecy to Edom and a few other nations who are rebelling, saying that God, who's in charge of all things, has given the land to Nebuchadnezzar, and that they'll be punished for rebelling against him. So it's kind of clear that there was this rebelling against Nebuchadnezzar. Um, so then, five years after Jerusalem was destroyed, the, the people were driven from Mount Seir, from their you know, high homes, uh, and then he basically had them go on this trail of tears type march to Egypt. And then finally, when Cyrus restored the Jews to Jerusalem, King Cyrus came in, who was the one that restored the exile to Jerusalem, but then when he was on that journey, he conquered Edom, slew tens of thousands of the Edomites, so these, I mean, they just keep getting battered by Babylon, right? Babylon comes and destroys them once, then Cyrus, I guess he was a king of the Persians or the Medo-Persians at that point, came, hammered them again, and finally they were stamped out completely in the middle of the second century. So this is not inspired. This is what we know from historical uh, or you know just general history. They were stamped out by the Maccabees, which were, which were Jews. So completely lost their. Identity as a nation at this point All this prophecy was fulfilled Alright So the restoration and triumph for Israel. So This is the part where you know, you see (laughs) This more exciting where you see God really not just dealing with the negative against his enemies, but really establishing Israel. So I'll go ahead and read this. It says, But on Mount Zion there will be those who escape, and it will be holy. And the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. Then the house of Jacob will be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, but the house of Esau as a stubble. And they will set them on fire and consume them, so that there will be no survivor of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Then those of the Negev will possess the mountains of Esau. So the Negev is kind of the southlands of Judah. They will possess the mountains of Esau, and those of Shephelah, the Philistine plain, also possess the territory of Ephraim and the territory of Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. And the exiles of this host of the sons of Israel, who are among the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem, who are in Sepharad, will possess the cities of the Negev. Lots of names there, right? What it means is basically Israel, who's been in exile, they're going to come back and their possessions are going to be restored. The lands that they had lived in are going to be restored. And the deliverers will ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. So there's a lot here, right? You know, one thing is seeing this stubble analogy with Esau being stubble. Stubble or like chaff is very flammable, it goes up in an instant. So what it's saying is. Jerusalem, Israel, is going to essentially come in and be what is going to be the flame that ignites and really extinguishes them, um, which is what happened. But then it talks about this Mount Zion. God will make his people holy. So Mount Zion is the the mountain of God. When you read the Old Testament and you see Mount Zion, Mount Zion was the actual mountain that the temple in Jerusalem was built on. But, as a theme, it's often used as a description, a synecdoche, I guess, you know, representing something much bigger than itself, where Mount Zion means the kingdom of God. When God talks about gathering the nations to Mount Zion, what he's saying is he's going to be establishing his kingdom and establishing his people. So, really, in the end, what we see is the kingdom of God is going to be established and the enemies are going to be destroyed. And that's the hope and the glory of it. So that's a very brief, you know, overview of Obadiah. But where do we come into play? Christ and his church. Okay. So you might think, okay, it's a little weird that we're starting the Old Testament, right? For the next year, we're starting the Old Testament. And every single week, we're going to be talking about a section called Christ and His Church. Well, that's weird because Christ had not come, and the church was not established during the Old Testament. Right? Well, (laughs) not exactly. What we understand is, and what we believe, and what we see is very clear through Scripture, is in the Old Testament, the church is God's people. Uh, we, there are some people who believe that the Old Testament Hebrews were saved in a different way than we're saved. Uh, that they were saved not through the sacrifice of Jesus. Scripture is very clear that those in the Old Testament were saved by grace through faith in Christ. And there's a lot of implications here. One of them is that all these promises that we read in the Old Testament that are to The Israelites and the promises of God's goodnesses and the prophecies about God's goodnesses to the Hebrews are really promises to us because it's to God's people. After the church was established, you read in Acts, uh, that God welcomed in all these nations to be part of his people. In the Old Testament, God's people were a specific, you know, (laughs) the people who are actually Physical, genetic descendants of Abraham—that was his chosen people—throughout the Old Testament. And then, you know, in the New Testament, we find we've been grafted in. All those from all these other nations all around the world, the Gentiles, have been grafted into God's people. It's not two different groups of people. There's not, you know, oh, there's one. Uh, you, there's this tree analogy that you see in, in Romans, and uh, where it says that the God's people, like the, the Jews, were this tree of God's people, and we've been grafted into that tree. It's not two separate trees. There's not one tree over here for the Jews, and they were God's people, and then Jesus came along and established the second tree over here that's for the church, and that's us today. We are part of that same group of people. Um, And, you know, that it really opens up all these glorious promises when you see, oh, in the Old Testament, God... Delivered his people. God took care of his people. God promised us he's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. Well, oh, that's not just a promise to the, the Jews from 2,500 years ago. That's a promise to us. So that's why we look at Christ in his church, because it's really kind of trying to understand, well, how do these promises in the Old Testament, how do these stories in the Old Testament really apply to us today in the modern age of the church so you know one thing I there, I guess there's a few um, a few things that we'll cover in regard to this first of them being uh, so I talked about this already hostility against God's people do not marvel my brethren if the world hates you from 1 John. As I thought of the position that the church is in today versus the Israelites' relationships with the Edom, it seems clear that our relationship is very much like the relationship of Israel with Edom. And why do I say that? You know, there's points in the church's history where there was violent aggression toward the church. You know, where the state was coming in and slaughtering the Christians by the thousands. That's not happening to us today, right? That's not, the the government's not coming in at this point in time and killing us because we're Christians. But just like Esau, the Edom was mocking and undermining and doing all these things to drag down Judah, you know, trying to, you know, chip away at their progress, trying to again, yeah, undermine their work. That's what the world is doing for us today. There's always been the struggle between God's people and the people of the world. But, you know, with America, there's so much vitriol against the truth. You can't say the truth of the Bible. You can't say that God created man and woman. You can't say that, oh, it's clear in Scripture that a man should lead the home. That abortion is wrong, that God believes life started before, you know, before birth. You can't even say that Jesus is Lord. I mean, you can't say these things without having all this vitriol thrown at us and hatred, the fundamental truths. We're called bigots and, you know, whatever all these nasty things are that the world would love to, to call us. We're treated like Edom treated Israel. So I think in a lot of ways, I think it is relatable Um, you know if (laughs) which is why a book like this can be particularly comforting for us today so how do we what do we do because of this you know how does this i think we've covered a lot of this truth a lot of these concepts How should this kind of play out in the way that we actually act one i think we need to be really careful not to be like the edomites jacob and esau their relationship was characterized by strife right i think sometimes it's easy to let our relationships with each other with our families with our you know brothers and sisters in christ to be characterized by strife by comparing each other you know i'm sure jacob and esau think of how many comparisons there would have been in that home. Oh, dad likes my game better, you know, my, you know, my wild caught whatever animal he was hunting. Well, it just would have been a constant back and forth of comparing which, <laughs> which one the parents liked better or accepted more. We do that. We put that on ourselves. You know, I think as moms, sometimes we can look at people around us or like the Instagram mom, which is completely fake by the way and just look at this perfect family and, and think oh you know i'm not as good as them or we can look down on somebody right we can think like oh we've got our stuff together and look down on somebody who we think oh they're they're just always disheveled or whatever it is you know we're not the response is one that's not acknowledging that the good things we have are from god just like esau i think his dads we do that, you know fathers we can compare our our careers our homes there's all sorts of things that we can do as children or you know youth our actual siblings right like comparing ourselves to our our actual siblings the whole love your brother thing applies very much to your literal brother and you know I think that sometimes we'll have sibling rivalry we might call it sibling rivalry but really what it is is just A failure to love and and a strife, a failure to forgive. You know, single people, I remember back in college when I still was single and sometimes there'd be like, one of my friends would get engaged and be like, how on earth did that guy get engaged? He's such a, you know, (laughs) such a weirdo. How do you get a girlfriend? I'd be resentful of that because, you know, I wanted to have a wife and obviously God had a better plan, but like I, I think sometimes it'll, there, there are things that we compare ourselves to other people and have the same strife boiling up within us that Jacob and Esau would have had uh, in, their, in their family. You know, I think with Esau, we talked about it a little bit, but the, how they trusted in these high dwellings, right? They trusted in the, the racks they lived in. Their, the fact that they were up on a mountain, that they're not going to get attacked. What types of worldly things do we trust in that we don't think, okay, God's gonna provide, but we think, oh man, I got a good job now, or okay, I've got, I think a lot of it revolves around money or looks or appearance, whatever it is, like there are these things that we trust in that the people of Edom trusted in other than God. But finally, you know, the best best part of the story is God keeps his covenant with Abraham And this is such great comfort because we're God's people. He keeps his covenant with us. So when you think of the Israelites, it probably felt pretty bleak when they were getting kicked when they were down by Edom and dragged off to exile. And then in this other kingdom and just you know, completely distraught, everything they had had been ripped away because of their sin but it would have been just great distress but then what have we seen since then we saw god do exactly what he said he was going to do which is if they repent bring them back restore their heritage they came back to jerusalem and then he sent jesus who is the one that is really you know the lord of the whole world who comes to establish his kingdom so when we look around today and we see, oh man, things are pretty bleak right now. You know, as a, as a church, as Christians in this woke America, and thinking, man, things are pretty bleak. Well, yeah, things are pretty bleak. But that doesn't mean we need to live in fear. That doesn't mean we need to be distraught. What we should do is recognize, just like God promised those Israelites 2,400 years ago, that he was going to restore them. And then he did it. You know, the that God is promising us that we are going to triumph one day and, and be with him. And you know that's, that's the comfort, that's what's exciting about studying the Old Testament is you see God's goodness and his plan and his faithfulness to his people play out and that is for us. It's for you and I and we even have the Holy Spirit. You know, they didn't have the Holy Spirit poured out to the extent that we do. We can go to God and pray to him directly. And it's, you know, it's a tremendous blessing. So I hope that, that this is somewhat exciting. I hope that, you know, throughout the next year that you just over and over see how the Old Testament is packed full of God's goodness. All right, let's pray. Thank you for listening to Truth and Life. If you enjoyed the series, please subscribe. And remember from Genesis to Revelation, every book is truth to live by.